On this week's Texas Tribune Tribcast, we'll talk about the likely next Speaker of the Texas House, the start of bill filing for the 2019 legislative session, and an incoming Texas congressman's stint on SNL. But before we do, I'd like to thank today's Tribcast sponsors. Texas A&M University, where research is being taken from Earth to Mars. Visit fearlessfront.com to learn how Aggies are looking forward on every front. And the Houston Film Commission. The future of Texas's film industry is in the hands of the legislature. Learn more on tribtalk.org. Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, November 14th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. <laughs> Howdy. As the stage falls apart. I know, right on us. Uh, I am joined by our breaking news editor, Matthew Watkins. Hello there. Hey, that um, Texas A&M shout out was just for yeah, you. Yeah, I'm wearing burnt orange today, which is kind of unfortunate. Well, <laughs> is it scratchy? Hopefully there are only a handful of people watching. Uh, and our reporter, Cassie Pollack. Hello, everyone. Hi, Cassie. As always, we'll be taking your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, You can do it using the hashtag TribCast. Uh, One more quick housekeeping note before we begin. If you haven't yet listened to the pilot episode of Evan Smith's new podcast, Point of Order, do yourself a favor and do it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Run for it. You can find it on our website or in the TribCast channel of your favorite podcast player. Okay, Cassie, you have been covering every dip and divot of the Texas House Speaker's race, the race to succeed Joe Strauss, uh, and it was a very exciting weekend. Tell us all about what happened. Man, it was a total whirlwind. Uh, Sunday afternoon, Alex, another reporter here at the Tribune, and I, who have been uh, trying our best to cover the Speaker's race, got word that State Rep for Price, a Republican from Amarillo, was... uh, dropping out of the speaker's race and that not only was he dropping out, he was going to be endorsing uh, Dennis Bonin, who was the most recent um, entry into the race. Um, so, you know, that, that that made news. And then shortly after we got word that another Republican contender, Phil King, was dropping out. And from there, it just kind of seemed to be a domino effect, more or less. Um, 24 hours later, there was a news conference that Bonnet had called to basically announce that he had uh, not only 76 votes, which is the threshold needed to win election for Speaker of the House, but he had 109. Um, So the rest is history. The rest is history. So was Dennis Bonin truly a surprise? I mean, Matthew, was there a sense that this was being orchestrated behind the scenes for a long time? Or, I mean, he claims he didn't really want this, but then suddenly... He does? Yeah, well, uh, as Cassie's reporting showed, you know, it was in, I believe, late October when a big group of Republican lawmakers, about 40 of them, kind of got together to uh, encourage him to run. You know, how much of that was completely out of the blue and how much of that was you know, silently encouraged by yeah. Bonin. I'm not Carefully sure. Carefully engineered, know. you know, <laughs> spontaneity, right? Right. Bonin wanted to make very clear that he was not at that meeting, you know. Yeah, and was... I think our story even said that he had suggested being repulsed by the idea of being Speaker of the yeah. Texas House. You know, I wrote a column in May that was early in this thing, and basically, you know, the Speaker's race starts with 149 people wondering if they ought to be the next Speaker, and it quickly right. winnows down, and had a list of, you know, 12 or 15 names, you know, watch these names. It was like, you know, an early kind of spitballing thing. And one of the names on the list was Dennis Bonin, and I was walking across the Capitol grounds a couple of days later, and this big white pickup truck pulls up next to me, and the window goes down, and it's Bonin saying, take me off that list. (laughs) And I wrote another column about it that sort of said, take him off the list for now. I'd luckily left a foot in the door. And that was prescient. It plays into this idea that, you know, the minute you declare for speaker, nobody will tell you the truth to your face anymore, right? Mm -hmm. They're all, you know, you're so handsome, you're so, you'd be perfect as a speaker, 
good luck to you, and then they go off and talk to their friends. And Bonin, by pulling himself out of the race, whether he did it intentionally or not, left open the possibility to talk to all the other members all the time about, well, what do you think about so-and-so, and what do you think about so-and-so, and kind of know where everybody was and kind of know what everybody wanted. And then he waits until, you know, the last minute to jump in and say, I reluctantly join in the race. And he's got all this intel that he's gathered over all these months. It puts him that much ahead of all the other candidates. Right, coy move. Uh, well, let's talk about Dennis Bonin. I mean, I've been in and around the legislature for more than a dozen years at this point, and I feel like he's sort of grown up from someone who is this kind of like noisy and temperamental kid in the legislature, sort of a bomb thrower, to someone who became really a trusted member of Strauss's leadership team. What's his personality now? What's his demeanor now as he heads into a likely speakership? You know, I think uh, he kept his news conference on Monday to maybe two minutes, three minutes. It was very short, to the point, punchy. Wanted to drive home the point that the House is going to be unified, that they're going to get work done. And, you know, um, Bonin and, and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick have had their, uh, you know, their their Their, past their words, yes. Right, they've, <laughs> they've exchanged some words in the past. But, you know, uh, both sides, uh, you know, reacting to the news Monday, they both sound pretty, you know, um, civil and, and optimistic and hopeful that everybody is going to come back in January and work on big things like school finance and property taxes. Um, I don't know, maybe Ross or Matthew, you guys can speak better to, to the Bonin that, that was or that the Bonin may, that was. May, may still be. <laughs> I, I, have no idea. The, yeah. I think one of the reasons that people like Ross were including him in lists is because he checked off a lot of the boxes that members were looking for in a speaker. <clears throat> they, um, you know, there was a segment of the House that was frustrated feeling that Strauss was too moderate. I think the consensus is that Bonin lands a little to the right of him. There was a segment of the House that was frustrated with the Senate and that kind of past of fighting with Dan Patrick, uh, you know, allowed, uh, you know, was encouraging to a certain segment of people. Mm -hmm. They wanted someone who would kind of fight back Stand against Patrick. Stand up for them, yeah. Yeah, and then there was a segment that really liked the leadership of Joe Strauss, and Bonin was a part of that membership. Mm -hmm. So really, all those different groups can kind of see something they like in Bonin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, when he first got elected in 96, I always go around and ask older members what they think of younger members after they've been around for a month or so. You know, who's the star here? Who are the duds? And Pete Laney was speaker at the time and pointed at Bonin, who was in his mid-20s when he got elected, and said, I don't know which kind of headline that guy's going to be, but I think he's probably going to be a headline. Uh, you ought to get to know him. Mm -hmm. Bonin's a reliable, you can follow him around and find messes in the house. Sometimes they're messes that he started. Sometimes they're messes that somebody else is trying to work out like the property tax mess last session. Um, he's just in the middle of things. And I think one of the things that really prepared him for the speaker's race is his ability to sort of walk around in the middle of the, of the fight and figure out where everybody is, you know, for better or for worse. You know, it, it, it um, comes to a moment, you know, when you announce on Monday, you've got all but four of the Republicans and 30 of the 67 Democrats, you know, you've put together a bipartisan thing and, you know, kind of snuck under some other really capable players. I think, you know, the thing he's most known for over there is his ability to maneuver the process more than, you know, the package of bills that he's carried over time. How many speakers have you covered in the legislature? Um, Gib Lewis, Pete Laney, Tom Craddock, Joe Strauss. How does Dennis Bonin compare temperamentally to those speakers? You know, everybody's a little bit different. Joe Strauss is a, you know, almost an introvert. You know, he's a very um, 
um, quiet guy, always very restrained, at least publicly. You know, for all I know, he throws dishes, but, you know, <laughs> publicly he's very restrained um, and, you know, a little bit formal. Uh, Laney was, you know, what my dad used to call country slick. You know, it seems like a very country guy, very, very smart, very adept, and, you know, probably smarter than most of the people in the room, and also was a very good process player. He always had a couple of things running and, you know, a really good legislative chess player. Uh, Tom Craddock and Laney were similar in some ways and unsimilar in some ways. Craddock ran a very speaker-centered house where the members uh, eventually chafed at being, you know, kind of bossed around by the, by the corner office. That's what sunk his speakership eventually, but he's also a, a really good player in the house, um, knows the members really well, also on the quiet side. Quiet is pretty much a marker for speakers so far. And then Gib Lewis was this sort of outsized personality and, you know, uh, one of those people that was easy to underestimate. You know, he was, he seemed kind of goofy. And, mm -hmm. you know, but he was speaker for 10 years. They kept reelecting him and bringing him back. Bonin is a much more outsized personality, much more likely to grab a microphone to get in front of a camera than most of his predecessors. I don't know whether he'll back off from that or not. I, I doubt it. Leopards mm -hmm. don't change their spots. <laughs> uh, this is going to be interesting. Uh, I mean, for you two, is there a sense that that's what the House wants at this point? I mean, talk about the relationship that's set up already. Again, Bonin and Lieutenant Governor have not had a warm and fuzzy relationship, despite their the nice things they said about each other. Like Ross said, a leopard doesn't change his spots. Did the House send a message with Bonin that, you know, look, we're not going to be bossed around by the Senate, and we want somebody who's going to stick it to Dan Patrick? Um, you know, I think that something that... Um, House members who were definitely on the list of, of folks who are supporting Bonin, and particularly just center-right Republicans, they kept going back to a couple of things. You know, the fact that Bonin would would stand up for the House um, if needed, and two that Bonin seemed to have not only the institutional knowledge, you know, product of being in the House for 21, maybe 20, going on 22 years now, um, but also that you know he has, or that he's at least exhibited, you know, a great amount of respect for for parliamentary procedure, for House rules, and that you know, they think that that's going to lay the groundwork for a successful session, you know, not just for them, but, you know, just for everybody in the lower chamber. That's, that's my read on it. Yeah, I think, Dan, you know, you talk about uh, Joe Strauss not necessarily being one to get out in front of the cameras and stuff right. like that. Dan Patrick has shown a tendency to do that. And I think that was frustrating to some members of the House because it seemed like, at least publicly, the conversation about what was going on in the Capitol was being driven by Dan Patrick. Right. And, you know, the House doesn't that like way that. to the governor, too, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so we saw the addition of a dozen new Democrats in the House on Election Day. Uh, and the Democratic caucus, I know, was hopeful that they were going to get to play a role in, you know, putting their weight behind a particular spe speaker. Did this sort of move so fast with Bonin that they had to sort of quickly get in line or not? Did the Democrats get to play here or not really? Uh, they certainly wanted to. I think you kind of said it, you know, uh, the... I guess the Friday before we were all heading into this this uh, long uh, weekend, Chris Turner, the chairman of the House Democratic Caucus, had sent a, an email to the soon-to-be 67-member caucus saying, hey, um, you know, over 50 of you guys have signed a sheet agreeing to vote together as a block for the speaker. So they definitely kind of wanted to come off as, you know, riding after Election Day, you know, on, on this wave of enthusiasm and unity. Um, but that quickly fell apart Monday as everything was kind of... Uh, 
you know, playing out. There was a um, last minute attempt or some sort of uh, attempt, you know, behind the scenes between Democrats and, and the last two Republicans in the speaker's race, aside from Bonin, Travis Clardy and Drew Darby, to work out some sort of deal to where Darby or Clardy could uh, rise up, you know, with support of Democrats. Um, that just for, you know, multiple reasons uh, didn't end up playing out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by the time that Bonin released his list, there were a lot of Democrats on that list. Yeah, so is he a good speaker for Democrats or, yeah, what? You know, for, you know, if you, if you time this a little differently, you can get a different winner. And if the, if the other candidates had been faster and less worried about the composition of their votes than about the number of their votes, they might have been able to close this. If you were running for any 76 votes and not worried about, you know, whether, you know, which kind of votes they were, Democrats or Republicans, um, you might have gotten there faster. But by the time they were working that angle, they were trying to get Republicans who were looking at Bonin's momentum and wanting to get on the train. And, you know, by then you're, it's hard to attract the 26 Republicans that mm -hmm. you're going to add to the Democrats. And it leaves the Democrats out in the cold. You know, 37 of the, of the 67 Democrats aren't on the first list of 109 supporters for Dennis Bonin. On the other hand, he has enough Republicans on his list to have won without a single Democrat. So, right. you know, he's situated pretty well with the Republicans and the and all the fractiousness inside the GOP, the Democrats, you know, are a little divided now, the mm -hmm. ones who were on and the ones who weren't on. It's, it's an interesting situation where, you know, a little bit over a week ago, Democrats gained a dozen seats in the Texas House, and now we're going to have a speaker who's most people agree is more conservative than, than the one the we had before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, by the Mark Jones rating, he's f further to the right. You know, right. Mark Jones ranks all the members of the legislature. He's number 126 or something. There's a, there's a story from last session, Ross, you could probably tell it better than I could, but about SB4 in the House and how there was a deal like that was leadership was trying to work. Yes, yep. immigration. The leadership was trying to work out with the Democrats and to kind of get a bill that's different than the one that passed that Democrats loathe maybe more than any other bill that came out last session. Right. And while they were kind of trying to get their act together and get that agreement pulled together, correct me if I'm wrong, Bonin kind of got tired of waiting and moved forward. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, now here we are again with the speaker's race and as Democrats are trying to organize themselves and, and kind of try to have a real voice in this, right. Bonin comes in and kind of pulls the rug out from under him again. Yeah. Two, versions, two versions of that story. One of them is that, you know, Bonin was the guy who walked into the negotiation and said, you know, come on, you want to do this or not? Saw it off. Let's, let's finish this up. On the other hand, you have the argument that, you know, Bonin cut it off while they were on their way to a deal. This was over the show me your papers provision called the Schaefer, Schaefer Amendment. And it had to do with whether local police check the immigration status of the people that they stop. And it was a very contentious piece of the bill when it got to the floor. And so much so, this is one of the reasons that the Democrats were slow to sign on with speaker candidates. So much so that the Democrats had marked the 11 Republicans who didn't vote for the Schaefer Amendment as the only ones they thought were eligible to be speaker. Mm -hmm. A couple questions coming in on social media. Judson asks, were there Republicans who did not sign on uh, with Dennis Bonin? There's four uh, who weren't on, and I honestly don't have the names on me. You know who they are? I don't know all of them. I do know that uh, State Rep. Jonathan Stickland, a member of the House Freedom Caucus, uh, did not sign on. Um, they and, do not love each other, right? And I believe <laughs> uh, he was the only. He ended up being the only one from the twelve, uh, the currently twelve-member group, um, 
who did not sign on. From the Freedom Caucus. From the Freedom Caucus, mm -hmm. yes. And, and Drew Darby wasn't on the first list. Right, Drew Darby as well. And neither, I guess, was Travis Clardy. So there we go, uh, three of them. Yes. Um, so those were two speaker candidates who were trying to get the Democrats at the right. end. Right. Uh, and Jonathan asks, I hope not Jonathan Stickland, <laughs> does Bonin plan on delegating powers away from the speaker to make a more member-driven House this session? I think, you know, the, the whole Strauss idea was that it was going to be a more member- mm -hmm. Gener you know, more member-run House. Um, you know, the, the thing really that's at issue here is whether if more than half of the members of the House sign on to a piece of legislation or sign on to an amendment, does that automatically bring it to the floor? And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. You know, part of being a speaker is a protection racket. And the idea that on something like the bathroom bill or on a thing where you've got friends on both sides of the argument, you know, that may not be, you know, politically significant like the bathroom bill, that you can come out and say, I'm for this bill and I wish the speaker would bring it out. And then you can go in the back hall and say, don't bring it out. I don't want to vote on it. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. The bathroom bill was a great example of that, although it had, you know, something well north of a majority of the House signed onto it. So there's a question of exactly how member driven the House was before. And a lot of that is optics. Right. All right, well, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors. UT Press presents A Mile Above Texas, stunning aerial photographs taken during a 3,822-mile circumnavigation of Texas offer fresh views of the beauty and diversity of the state's natural and human landscapes. Find it at utpress.utexas.edu. And the Holdsworth Center, founded by HEB Chairman and CEO Charles Butt, the Holdsworth Center helps Texas public school districts cultivate a pipeline of effective leaders. Visit holdsworthcenter.org to learn more. All right, I want to talk about a Texas congressman-elect, Dan Crenshaw, who got a whole heck of a lot of airtime over the last couple of weeks uh, on Saturday Night Live, of all places, Matthew Phyllison. Yeah, so uh, Ross and I were uh, weekend editors the last two weekends, and so we happened to be the ones who caught this story on Saturday night. Um, basically, we uh, accidentally wrote a lot about it. You that. accidentally <laughs> watched Saturday Night Live. That's right. And accidentally. Right. That's right. Um, we, uh, I guess the, the Saturday Night Live episode before the election, uh, one of the comedians jumped on uh, Weekend Update, Pete Davidson, and gave, I guess, a had a gag going where he was giving his first impressions of... Um, you know, possible incoming congressmen, um, one of whom was uh, Dan Crenshaw, who uh, those who aren't familiar with him uh, should know is a former Navy SEAL who lost an eye and had another eye badly damaged in an explosion uh, during one of his deployments and now wears an eye patch. And so Pete Davidson made a uh, an off-color joke about this, um, seemed to be kind of dismissing and mocking the war injury in the military service that Crenshaw uh, had. And uh, not surprisingly, it was not received well. It right. kind of immediately anywhere, you know, yeah. yeah, anywhere among Democrats, Republicans. It was making it was a joke not about his politics, but about his appearance, and it was just right. You know, and the appearance a of a war veteran, right. you know, I mean, someone injured in battle. It was like the height of stupidity. Right. Yeah. So then Crenshaw wins in on Tuesday, um, as expected. He was right. he was kind of the favorite in the race, and uh, a week passes and. Uh, you know, Crenshaw kind of let it roll off his shoulders. He, you know, said uh, he, he didn't think it was a funny joke, but, you know, he's, he doesn't really get worked up about things like this. Right. Uh, but then, I'll, I'll, Ross, I'll let you tell the second half. <laughs> so on, on my episode of Saturday Night Live. <laughs> on, on your episode as Weekend um, Editor, right. He, you know, they pop up in the Weekend Update, you know, and, and they go to Pete Davidson and he starts with an apology and then the camera 
opens up a little bit, and Crenshaw's sitting next to him, and uh, they they start talking a little bit, and uh, Crenshaw's phone rings, uh, with and the ringtone is Ariana Grande, and Cassie, this is your Cassie, turn. <laughs> This is your footnote section. No comment, y'all. No comment. No comment. Just so, because you're young. Oh, oh I guess she did date D Pete, Pete Davidson. Davidson. Right. right. Okay. That's yeah. my contribution. Uh, that yes. was our millennial reference point. Right. Thank right. you. I'm thank sorry you so much for that. that for, for all. So, he, so Pete Davidson goes, really, Ariana Grande and, and Cranshaw goes, oh, you know her. Um, so, so that was the, the first jab. And then Davidson said, well, you know, I made fun of you, so it's only fair that you get to make fun of me. And he made a joke. And then he... Davidson says, okay, so we're even. He said, no, no, I want to do another one. He did three, three jokes. And then they went into this serious thing about veterans and about uh, getting along and about making up. And, you know, it actually was sort of a, you know, heartwarming moment. And, you know, the effect of all of this has vaulted uh, Crenshaw sort of into a national limelight. National limelight. Yeah. You know, he's in a class of freshmen. Uh, we were talking about it before we came on the air. There was a big feature in the style section of the Washington Post about him and how he got where he is and a really interesting story about him. And um, he's sort of, you know, the face of the class right now, of mm -hmm. the freshman class. So he's gone from a guy who wasn't supposed to win a primary. He, I think he was, you know, if you were looking at the original, you were sort of, you know, betting on horses at the original, at the outset of that thing, there was a rich candidate and there was a member of the Texas House and some Navy SEAL guy and somebody else, you know, it was, it was like that. He won that, he won this, now he's like the front of the class. It was, I mean, the, the second appearance, or his only appearance, I guess, on SNL was, I mean, even I, I, I'm pretty jaded about these things, but it was a pretty great moment just for him. And also, I think just in the context, the timing, is it's been such a divisive right. time, a divisive election. And it was just really nice. I think people really enjoyed seeing kind of, uh, instead of, taking a slight and turning it into kind of political warfare to kind of go the other direction. We don't see it much. Right. And I think it really did kind of make him a really notable face, mm -hmm. uh, you know, across the country. Right. It also rebrands him after a tough campaign. You right. know, you come out of a tough campaign and everybody's like, you know, more people like you than hate you, but there are people who hate you. And now he comes out and his first impression on everybody who's not in that congressional district is, Oh, that guy's interesting. Yeah, and a guy who can take a joke and a guy who, you know, can hand it back on, on national television. I mean, I think, you know, while it was sort of a initially a shitty joke, you know, made at his expense, it, right. he seems to have turned this in a very savvy way into right. something that's great for his political career. Yeah, this works for a new political branding, career. Right? Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, well, another congressional race I just want to quickly check in on is the, I believe, still undecided race between Gina Ortiz-Jones and the Republican incumbent, Will Hurd. I just heard Cassie said that Gina Ortiz-Jones is actually in Washington for orientation, even though she has is trailing in the race. What's bold, the latest? Bold move. Yeah, oh, yes. <laughs> right. That, that was flagged by the Tribune's very only uh, Patrick Svitek, so got to give him a hat tip for that. But yeah, I guess she's in, in D.C. Um, there's been a lot of back and forth um, over, over ballots, provisional ballots, mail-in ballots. It's a close race for the 23rd Congressional District. This is that big one. It's the only, you know, on paper, it's the only swing district in Texas. In fact, it's not one of the two seats that swung. Uh, but Will Hurd barely got out. And it was interesting because all of the votes, you know, to, to watch the counties and the Secretary of State's websites as the votes came in on election night, 
all of the votes were in except for in Medina County, which is a pretty red county, and so I called the race. And, you know, I think uh, AP called the race. And, Everybody called the race. You know, it was the basically... The New York Times called the race. It was basically yeah. everything but Medina County is in and herds ahead. We all know how Medina, Medina County is going to vote. And then within about a 45-minute period, it uh, the Medina County votes came in. It appeared that Herd had lost... The Medina County votes were changed. It appeared then that Heard had won. And now there's a contest between Heard and Ortiz Jones over how the votes are counted, whether the votes were counted properly, whether there are enough provisional ballots to flip this race. And it's obviously in contest enough that a uh, judge had told Heard that um, she got a setback in court, but they still got time before the canvas, the official count of the votes for her to contest provisional votes and some other things, and she's contesting it enough that I guess she's gone to orientation just in case. Mm, just in case. Well, when will we know something one way or the other? The canvas in early December. So we've got, you know, this sort of the candles burning here. The provisional votes and stuff were supposed to be counted um, this week, and then, you know, the official count comes in. You can have an election contest after that. You know, even, in, even after the official canvas, you can um, legally challenge the vote. So I don't know how this is going to wind up. Mm. All right. Well, Matthew, Veterans Day was the official first day of bill filing for the 2019 legislative session. While the rest of us were on vacation, you pulled in yet another shift and had a big busy day. Um, any surprises on the list of initial bills filed for next session? I mean, my personal uh, favorite yes, was please. the uh, the state rep, Ron Reynolds, who filed, I believe, 21 bills uh, while he was in the Harris County Jail. <laughs> his staff is working overtime on his behalf. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Did uh, any of them relate to his release or his conditions there? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so, uh, yeah, T-bone yeah. steaks for yeah, all right. meals at the Harris yeah. County Jail. And it's, it's unclear exactly when he will be getting out of jail, but uh, probably right around the beginning of the session. So he will be there to right. uh, attempt to usher those through. Um, Beyond that, you know, we had uh, a lot of bills related to marijuana laws. Um, we had some, you know, kind of the your boilerplate, you know, things you see every year, uh, calling for a constitutional amendment to end abortion. Um, there was a um, paid sick leave bill. Mm -hmm. um, Austin and San Antonio have passed ordinances requiring employers o to allowing provide, it or not allowing it. The bill. Uh, so the bill would not allow Austin and San Antonio to have these ordinances. It would usurp um, the local, it's the local block, control. Block local Blocking city, local, yeah. right. That one was actually interesting because when Austin passed its ordinance, uh, Representative Workman uh, from Austin uh, said he was going to file a bill getting rid of the ordinance. Then he lost his election. So um, another, I believe... Uh, Vicky Goodwin. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Matt Krauss filed Matt that Krauss one. Matt filed right. it. Um, On instead. his behalf. Yeah. So, you know, one of the interesting things, it was a, a lot more Democratic bills than Republican bills. I'm not sure if that's just because they want to have a high number and hope, you know, they're in the minority, maybe filing early will allow them to kind of get a leg up on their bills. Um, you know, there's a lot more to come, though, between now and January 8th when the legislature... If you want to file a bill and you don't want anybody to pay attention to it, don't pay it, don't do it on the first or last right. day. Just, you know, dump it in the middle somewhere. They're going to file 6,000 pieces of legislation and that'll just float by on the river. The first I, day is when everybody's going for headlines. I saw that in the early days, the uh, bill banning daylight savings time That's was right. on the short list. And so that must have a high number. So does that mean that we may finally actually hear this legislation? Maybe we should uh, ask our new or incoming speaker about this. I don't know. I mean, It's a high priority for all parents of toddlers. I, yeah, I don't, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's such a weird piece of legislation and it, you know, it, 
it moves parents one way. It moves the people who run summer uh, entertainment, you know, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. everything from amusement parks to movie theaters in another way. Um, you know, I, it was originally post posited as, you know, farmers really want this. You know, I don't think the cows right. care what time it is. I think the <laughs> farmers are just fine. Um, I also saw that Texas still has a rule in its penal code that makes homosexual conduct a crime, and Joe Moody, a Democrat, wants to do away with that. Um, what are the chances he's successful given this legislative makeup? I believe he's filed a bill to that end before, and it hasn't worked out. Um, although, you know, there's still a lot of... Obviously, that law does not cannot be enforced. The, the Supreme Court has right. um, shot it down, um, but it, it still bears a lot of symbolic importance. And, you know, I think a lot of people would like to see it out of the, the state statute. Right. Yeah. And a lot of social conservatives, on the other hand, don't want to vote to right. appear to say, okay, to... Right. Don't want know, to vote on it at all. Right. right. They're just, you know, back to the protection racket. Yep. So we'll see where Bonin whether Bonin thinks they ought to vote on that or not. Yep. All right, well, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to Texas A&M University, the Houston Film Commission, UT Press, and the Holdsworth Center, our sponsors this week. And an extra special thanks to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Ross, Matthew, Cassie, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for joining us. Hello.